you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning, Mark chapter 10. And, you know, some of you might be wondering right now, what is a discipleship pastor? And so to explain this, I'll break it into two sections. One is a pastor. What is a pastor? And that is someone who comes to church early to test taste the coffee. That's, that's what a pastor does. But discipleship, discipleship is learning and growing as we follow Jesus. There's a lot to it, but it's as simple as that. Learning and growing as we follow Jesus. And really, there's no better way to learn how to learn and grow as we follow Jesus than by taking a closer look at a group of people 2,000 years ago who were learning and growing as they were actually on the road following Jesus. And so that's why we're in Mark chapter 10. It says, Mark chapter 10, verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. So these disciples had been following Jesus for some of them for as many as three years. Some of them less. They joined him along the way. But it had been a crazy journey. I mean, you might imagine following Jesus is probably a crazy journey. They, they saw demon-possessed people being healed. They were a part of going out into open spaces and feeding 5,000 people at a time. They saw Jesus walk on water right out after he got kicked out of his own hometown. They saw Jesus do some really, or have some really confusing teachings about life and the kingdom of God. And then they heard some really hard teachings about difficult topics like divorce and how to, uh, how to make sure you get through, uh, through a relationship with God with a lot of money, which is what happened right before this in Mark chapter 10. Their journey was full of twists and turns. So many, in fact, it was sort of like, you know, being a third grade group leader at VBS here at last week. And by the way, we've talked about it already, but that really, really was just a tremendous week. So thank you again to all of you who participated in all of the twists and turns of VBS. Ben, you still have the shirt on right now, so way to go. Uh, twists and turns of VBS. But their journey was like that following Jesus. But the moment that Jerusalem was mentioned by Jesus, there was this sort of ear-perking moment for the disciples. Those who were following Jesus were like, wait, we're headed in to Jerusalem? They knew, at least to some degree, that meant they were closing in on the end of this journey. Now, some of them may not have. They were paying attention to themselves, and maybe they were ignoring Jesus, and maybe they were going through their Yelp scroll, like looking at, we're going to Jerusalem. Let's look up some good matzah joints to hit when we get there. I don't know. But, and then some even were in the group who, who were following behind Jesus, but they would not have called themselves followers of Jesus. Rather, they were more of on the fringe. They were just checking out, what is this Jesus movement? You know, maybe some of you here this morning are in that camp. 
Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but, but you're here. Maybe somebody invited you or maybe you're just checking out, like, well, what is this Jesus thing about? Uh, it's, I'm curious enough to know more, want to know more. And I, I want to say, we're so glad that you are here. We believe that you are in the right place to find out more about who Jesus is. And in fact, this text that we're going to look at together will bring out just the beauty of the Savior. And if you're still curious, we uh, want to do a plug for in just a couple of short months in September, we're going to start a group called Discover Jesus. And you can bring your questions and your curiosities about who Jesus is to that group. And uh, we encourage you to do that. But back to the text, it says some of these followers were astonished. Others were fearful. It was really a mixed bag of emotions. And Jesus knew in this moment that there was some confusion amongst the disciples about what it meant to finish this journey strong following Jesus. And so he pulls his main 12 disciples over kind of to the side of the road and maybe bends down and leans in a little bit, does a huddle sort of thing. It says in the text, again, so he had done this sort of reset with them before. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. So he pulls them over to do a course correction. Uh, two weeks ago, I was not here at church, and my son and I were swimming in the Chesapeake Bay. Now, we did not do the full swim across the Chesapeake Bay, the 4.4-mile swim, but we did the mile in the Chesapeake Bay swim where we would swim out for about a half mile, and then we'd turn around this uh, marker, and then we would come back. Now, Thomas had never done an open water swim before, so I had to explain to him a little bit about how we do this because, because the wind was kicking a little bit this day. And I said, as soon as we get out of this first cove, it's going to get a little bit crazy. These waves that are out there, about one and a half to two feet, which it doesn't seem huge, but when you're down there swimming, it is. And the current was pulling south to north, and so it was going to push us a little bit. Beyond that, we were all starting together, all 300 swimmers, all in the same place at the same time. They call this the Cuisinart start because it's just people spinning and hitting each other and that whole deal. And besides that, we had our heads down in the water and couldn't see. And I said, Thomas, here's what we do. We start in on this journey and then we just have to pick our heads up, look over the waves and you see that big orange triangle buoy over there, that is our heading. That's where we need to go. Well, wouldn't you know it, two minutes into this thing, our heads are down, the waves are whipping, and the Cuisinart's going, and I lift up my head, and we are already off course. Now, we're not that far off course, but we're off course enough that if we stayed off course, we were going to end up somewhere in the Atlantic. But I turned around and tapped Thomas and I said, let's look up and you see the big orange triangle buoy. We need to course correct. You know, the truth is, is that as we follow Jesus in this life, there are going to be times that we need to course correct as well. Because we live in a world that, um, that is where the currents will pull and the waves are loud and people are like a little bit Cuisinart-y. And, uh, and we're living a world 
where there are confusing messages about what truth is and what truth is not, what we should prioritize and what we shouldn't, what we should do and what we shouldn't. And it's not long in this world before we just get off course a little bit. And so what follows in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 45, is a picture of Jesus pulling his disciples over and course correcting them in three ways. And we're going to be able to look in and watch closely so that we can also learn how to stay on course and be great followers of Jesus. So here's what happens first. We go into verse 33. Jesus, uh, his first course correction starts actually with reminding his followers that the path to discipleship includes suffering. He tells them, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Back in 2019, uh, we had a real hard moment in our family. And my adopted sister, she was 10 years old at the time, uh, went into the hospital for a life-saving liver transplant. But, the, um, but it was a failed liver transplant. And my 10-year-old uh, sister died in the process. And I'll never forget the coming home from the hospital and uh, gathering my kids around. I have four kids and we gathered around on the sofa and I was like, there's no easy way to say this. They, they called Damari their cousin. They were about the same age and just loved her. She was such a lovable girl, just really a bright spot in all of our lives. And I had to sit there and tell them that Damari has passed away. And there was some shock. There was some anguish. There were some tears. But perhaps more than anything, what came through was this question of Why? Why did this have to happen? And what I know is that in this room, as I look around, there are those of you who are going through some painful stuff right now. Maybe you are in the process of uh, burying a loved one, a parent, a cousin, whatever. Maybe you have recently received a diagnosis from a doctor that does not look good. Maybe you've been struggling in some of your relationships, maybe with your kids, and there's some brokenness there. Maybe with a spouse, and you're going through or have gone through some separation or or even divorce. Those things are painful, or you're dealing with job loss, or you're dealing with anxiety, or court cases, or depression. I mean, the list goes on of all the things in life that cause pain. And we ask ourselves, why? And that is a good question. But in this moment, what Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us is that there's actually, why is an important question, but there's a bigger question here to wrestle with, and that is this. Instead of asking why, we get to ask who. 
who is in the hurt with us. A few short chapters after this one, we are going to find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the day before, it's the night before he's going to under, uh, he's going to go through all of this painful uh, stuff. And he prays to the Father and says, if you can take this cup, this suffering from me, please do. Because it's painful for him. But then in the next breath, he says, but not my will, but yours be done. And he could only say that because he knew that the Father was with him in the midst of his pain. And so what the teaching is, what Jesus is encouraging his disciples of, is you are going to go through hurt and pain in your life, but there is good news, is that there is hope in the hurt. There is hope in the midst of the hurt because God is with us in the midst of it. You know, there's a great band from Georgia that was big in the 1990s. That was when I was growing up listening to a lot of music. Uh, the band was named R.E.M., and they put out a great song that said, Everybody Hurts Sometimes. And it's so true, isn't it? Everybody hurts sometimes. But for those of us who follow Jesus, this next line that Jesus offers to his disciples and offers to us is so important. Because he doesn't leave it at the hurt and the pain and the mocking and the spitting. This next text is so powerful. He says, three days later, he, remember referring to himself, the son of man, will rise. He will rise. Jesus models for us in this moment the reason for hope. He will rise. Jesus defeated death by rising from the tomb. And one of the results of that is that we, as we walk through pain in this life, certainly we're not b being asked to do it with like pom-poms, like, oh, this is so great, I'm going through pain. No, no, no. But we can walk through these things with hope. You know, I heard it said that the cross of Christ is the precise moment in all of history where the greatest pain and the most blessed hope converge in a single moment. Here's the application. Just like the disciples on the road that day, Jesus knows that we are going to experience pain in our lives too. But he offers us himself to walk through it with us and he offers us the hope that there will be another side to it that life will come from death he will rise so the first point that Jesus makes is that there is hope in the hurt and then there's James and John Verse 35, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What timing, right? 
It was like they were like, okay, all right, we sort of hear you about the whole beating, spitting, and mocking stuff. And that, that sounds terrible, Jesus. But let's just, let's just talk about us for a second. It was like they had their Toby Keith moment. I don't know if you follow country music, but about 15 years ago, Toby Keith came out with a song that goes, I want to talk about me, you want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh my. I won't go on. I can, but I won't. <laughs> But this was James and John's Toby Keith moment. They're like, that sounds terrible, but let's just talk about us for a second. And Jesus, playing along, says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. <laughs> They're like, they were like, we're the sons of thunder. Come on, one-two punch. Yeah, we're going to, when the, here's the thing, Jesus. Well, we know you love us. We know we're sort of like, we're the big shots in this group of yours. And so we're just trying to make sure that we, we know we're sort of toward the end here. But when the dust settles on all this, that we have the front position. That we are out in front of the group and have the best position. And Jesus, in verse 38, just replies. He says, you don't know what you are asking. And I think it's in this moment when Jesus um, thinks, you know, the next time, when, when I move into glory, the ones who are going to be on my left and my right are going to be the two criminals on my left and right on the cross suffering the same way that I am. That's what it means to be on my left and my right. But James and John were not thinking that. He goes on and asks them, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, which is referring to suffering. Can you suffer the same way that I am about to suffer? Verse 39, we can, they answered. It's interesting when we look at this, this text and this conversation between James and John and Jesus. And I don't know what your Bible looks like, but mine has larger than normal breaks in between what Jesus says and then what James and John says. And there's a reason for that. When we look at this conversation in the Greek, each of the conjunctions, each of the lines has a conjunction and it starts with the word death. And in Greek, that's the way, I was talking with Pastor Marty about this the other day, and he calls it, this is like the conversational speed bump word. This is the one where when it starts with that, and it's outlining this conversation, you know you're on one track, and the person you have a conversation with is on the other track. This is actually much like the conversation Jesus had earlier in Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler came to him and said, all right, I got all my stuff and I've earned a lot and uh, we're, I'm ready for the last piece to get for the kingdom. And Jesus is like, ay, 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 you are on such the wrong track. Well, that's what's happening. That's what's happening here with James and John and Jesus. They are on two different sheets of music. And I'll, my son, he's 14 years old, and he plays orchestra. He plays cello in the orchestra. And the last couple years, uh, he's, he's moving into high school, and the orchestra's been great to go and listen to. They play together well. It sounds beautiful, and we enjoy being a part of it and listening to it. Back when he was in elementary school, <laughs> I, I'm, I, 
um, I know there were some moments when the, they, there were people in that orchestra who were not on the same sheet of music <laughs> as the other people. And I don't, if you've ever heard music being two different songs, two different sheets of music being played at the same time, you will know that it is downright cringy. And that's what this conversation was. It was getting downright cringy because James and John were thinking about their man-made position in the kingdom, and Jesus is thinking about God-given purpose. They were thinking power and position. God, uh, Jesus is thinking purpose. And look what he says to them next. He says to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And then verse 40, but to sit at my right or my left, that position is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. God the Father prepared James and John, not for a position, but for a purpose. And I love Jesus' encouragement to them. James and John, you are going to do great things. You are going to fulfill your God-given purpose. You know, as we follow and represent Jesus in the world, we each carry a sound, do you know this, outside of these walls into our schools, into our work environments. And I think the question is this morning, what kind of sound are you carrying with you? Is it the one of discord where your agenda about being in a position is different than God's agenda for you about giving you purpose? Because if so, we take something that should be really good news, amazing grace, what does it say? How sweet the sound. And when we're at odds with what God wants for us, the good news starts to sound a lot less good. You know, it feels like every week, almost, I read an article in a magazine, Christianity Today magazine, about another prominent Christian leader who is desired to possess a position over fulfilling their God-given purpose. And if we're honest, any of us can get caught up in this because this is the current of the world, isn't it? But Jesus is saying in here, it's okay. Just lift your head up, be reminded, be course corrected as to what it means to truly follow me, that you've been given a God-given purpose and begin to follow that and course correct. So just to recap, first, Jesus course corrects his disciples by modeling hope and hurt, and secondly, by valuing purpose over position. And then finally, verse 41. I love this. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, you know how they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? He's like, you, you know how it works in the world, guys, right? Where, where like the people on the top of the food chain, they have all the stuff and then they go through life and they just get more stuff. And then those people who are on the bottom of the food chain, they don't really have any stuff and any stuff they do have, they have to give it up the food chain. You know how that works in the world? And James and John are sitting there thinking, yeah, we know how it works. Why do you think we wanted to be number one and number two? 
You know, they lived in a culture that was so hierarchical, it was like, it was like one of the worst things that could happen to you to be a servant. It was one of the best things to be in power at the top of the food chain. That's how their cultural paradigm was. And so on the side of the road that day, Jesus pulls them over and says, I know that a lot of you are thinking that the kingdom of God should work much the same way as the kingdoms of the world, but the next four words flip the script. And Jesus leans in and says, not so with you. Not so with you. Or as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air would say, their lives got flipped, turned upside down. He goes on, Jesus does. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You know, when we look at the text, we notice this inversion. It says those that are great in the world, he uses the Greek word, word mega. To be great, mega in the world, you have to lord it over. You have to have authority over. You have to be at the top of the food chain. But he says, but if you want to be great in the kingdom, he uses the same word mega in the kingdom. You have to be servant of all. And I love that Jesus, in John chapter 13, demonstrates what that looks like. When he kneels down, you remember this part in John 13, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And he stoops to show them that greatness comes only when we stoop to serve. And after he teaches them for a while, remember what he says at the end of that? He says, now you go and do this for others. In our last verse, Jesus gives us the ultimate model that a disciple should serve to greatness. He says in verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I wanna close with a poem that was written uh, many years ago and uh, probably anonymous, but it was about Jesus representing how we serve to truly be great. The poem says this, he, Jesus, never wrote a book he never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of these things, usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. 19 centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race. 
And he is the leader of mankind's progress. All of the armies that have ever marched, all of the, na the navies that have ever sailed, all of the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Jesus' model of greatness impacted the world like no one and nothing else in history ever has. And he invites you and he invites me to be a part of it. But sometimes we need to be course corrected as we try to follow his model of greatness. Look, if the disciples who followed him closely, physically for that long, needed a course correction, you know that we do too, and I do. But God is so gracious to be able to course correct us in this way. We get to look at scripture and see and, and have him model what greatness looks like. So in conclusion, Jesus models for his disciples and he models for us as followers of Christ what it looks like to be great. Number one, to know that there is hope in the midst of the hurt. Number two, that we should pursue purpose over position. And number three, serve to greatness. Let's pray. God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your course correction in our lives as we seek to follow you closely. Thank you for calling us to follow you in great ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.